We're going to look through less less actual reading of Revelation, more looking through the numerous places, uh, not all of them, but many places where the things in Revelation 21 and 22 are talked about everywhere else. Uh, and so the, the thought process with all of this is, We'll look at John's Gospel to see how he uses some words that he brings up in those final chapters of Revelation uh, within his Gospel. Uh, Then we'll back up a little more into the whole of the New Testament uh, to focus in on a couple sections, one from Peter, one from Paul, uh, and then back further into the Old Testament prophets and then back into Genesis as we have time. That's the plan. So handout or not, Bible is a good thing to have because we're going to read a few uh, sections here and all of this. In fact, if you want to turn to 2 Peter 3, we're going to talk about John's Gospel first, uh, but we're not really reading uh, a larger section there. 2 Peter 3 we'll we'll get into. Okay. Uh, In the opening of Revelation 21, uh, we have phrases that we, we see John use in other places. Normally when you are doing Bible study, uh, you want to look at verses within the context of their book first. And then if that author has other writings, you might jump into their other written things because uh, one author is going to use words in the same sort of way, uh, but different authors may use the same word in different kinds of ways. Uh, and so you want to be careful not to go from... Well, John wrote this book, and then James kind of talks about it here, and then Paul says this here. It's good to do that eventually, uh, but those words may not be used in exactly the same way. Uh, The discussion of faith and works between James and Paul, they seemingly are saying very different things if uh, if you define their words exactly the same way. But James is not talking about the same thing Paul is. They're coming at it from different places. Uh, And so we have to be careful when we're doing that. Uh, So looking at John's other writings here, there are a couple ideas uh, that are, uh, I think, are worth bringing up. In Revelation 21, verse 2, uh, John says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, the bridal language used here is something... Uh, John the Baptist uses of Jesus in John chapter 3, which obviously John's writing, even though it's a different John doing all the talking there. Uh, And it's worth noting here, since we won't note it later, uh, Ephesians 5 is obviously a very big uh, marriage context discussion, but the whole thing, Paul says, is an illustration of Christ and the church. Uh, So using this uh, Christ and his people as... um, Bridegroom and bride is not uncommon. Uh, It's done in a few places. The whole idea of God and God's people being bridegroom and bride too is an Old Testament idea as well. But anyway, we're looking at what John says about that. Uh, John 14, 1 through 3 is really the thought uh, that I have here about all this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus speaking to the apostles here uh, in this uh, this section here as they're all sitting together and and eating, and he's moving towards his uh, his death. 
Uh, he uses language, so he doesn't use the word bride here. He's using marriage language. Uh, we've talked about this in the past. I want to say earlier this year, maybe, maybe last year. I don't know. Uh, culturally speaking, when people were got engaged, uh, the the husband to be would then go and prepare a place uh, for them to inhabit after the marriage. Uh, and so from, uh, it would take any, however long. Uh, hopefully, th there's part of this that's like, well, hopefully it doesn't take too long because I'd like to be married. But on the other side of that, it's hopefully it takes long enough that the place that this guy is preparing is going to be a great place to be. Uh, what would often happen is the, uh, the husband-to-be would add on a room to his father's house. So this is something culturally that they would understand in a way very different to us. You have Jesus using this idea of, in my father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, so that where I am you may be also. It's marriage language. Uh, and this idea of Christ going, preparing the place to then come bring his bride to, uh, John's coming back to that idea here in Revelation. Just an interesting one to put on. This one I like the most, though, because it has to do with words. Uh, John 21, verse 3 says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Pausing here for a moment for those that came in later. The printer is messed up and weird. There should be a paper going around somewhere. I have no idea where it is. Somewhere over there. Uh, write your name down. I'll make sure you get a copy you know, Monday and all that stuff. But for today, you'll have to follow along with uh, probably a fast-talking version of me, sorry, uh, because of the stuff here and because this is cool and because I was sick last week. And I really wanted two weeks to talk about this. I don't get that. So anyway, if you're confused, that's fine. Uh, you'll have a paper on Monday. Just uh, just nod and smile and stuff, and we'll, we'll get through. Okay. The, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. That's Revelation 21, verse 3, speaking about this future reality. Uh, the word dwell, that's used twice here, uh, is literally the word tabernacle. It is the word used for tabernacle within the New Testament. Uh, what that communicates to us ultimately is similar to the marriage language, uh, the the intimacy of the relationship. Uh, you think about where the tabernacle and the temple was in relation to the people of God. It's right there at the center. It was God and his people, and here they are together. That's the idea being communicated uh, with the word dwell, uh, that God and his His people will be together, uh, not, not separated in any way, but uh, as one. But John uses this word uh, within his gospel, and he uses it in this way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, aside from the intimacy part of this, it also talks about, in John's gospel, uh, the, uh, the first coming of Christ. Uh, Jesus, as the word uh, leaving where he was, coming uh, in, phys in physical form to be with us, to dwell among us, to tabernacle among us in that way. Uh, and so it's kind of a cool thing to see John kind of bookend his two writings, the beginning of his gospel and the ending of Revelation here to say, like he dwelt among us here, he's going to, we're, we're going to dwell among each other here in this place. And he kind of gets this... Uh, satisfying bookend conclusion 
uh, with both of those writings. Anyway, there is other stuff we could highlight that John uses, uh, but we're going to back up into larger New Testament uh, here altogether. Okay, are you in 2 Peter 3? Yeah. Cool. There's a lot here. Uh, there are a lot of New Testament references to heaven and stuff that's going on there, and this is this is on the handout that you'll get, but I want to make sure it's said here. Viewed together, all these various passages, we may find ourselves having more questions about the end and the new creation of God. It is important in this discussion and all biblical matters to gather all the information we can, be diligent and study, and be gracious with uh, one another. Uh, there are a lot of very intelligent people with very different conclusions about all of this stuff uh, and how all this will go. Uh, my purpose this morning isn't really to say, well, here's what it is or why I don't think it's this, that, or the other thing or any of that, uh, but really just to highlight some of uh, the passages that at least over the last few years uh, have been the most, but most interesting to me as far as study is concerned, uh, but these are only part of the whole. Uh, we should take all of these things together. Okay, 2 Peter 3. Uh, I love 2 Peter 3. It's one of the most thorough discussions on uh, the new heaven, new earth idea. That's our, connection, our connecting point to Revelation 21. As John uses this phrase, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. He, he uses this phrase uh, in that part of the book. It's not unique to him. Uh, it's a phrase that exists prior to his his writing. Uh, Peter uses it, and we'll see in a little bit, too, that somebody uh, in the Old Testament used it as well. Uh, but Second Peter 3, I mean, the, the whole book's really good. Peter is constantly drawing on Old Testament uh, uh, accounts, things, things that went on specifically in regard to uh, God punishing the ungodly and, and rescuing the godly. That's the whole point of what uh, Peter is doing in his second letter. And as part of that discussion, you get 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, where Peter goes into new heaven and new earth and, and all of these things. The, the ultimate destruction of the ungodly and the ultimate deliverance of the godly. So it makes sense uh, where you have Peter talking about how God has done that throughout their history and what the ultimate looking of that will be like. And there's some similarities here. Uh, with what John writes in Revelation and what we'll see within the Old Testament here in a bit. <coughs> Here's what I have on the paper. Uh, Peter centers this whole discussion about the new heaven and new earth around the word promise. Uh, he uses it in chapter 3, verse 4, verse 9, and verse 13. And so he, he threads this theme by the word promise, that there is this promise of new heaven and a new earth. Uh, that God gives to uh, that God gives to us, and it's that promise that Peter is concerned with here. He wants to he wants to stress this is a promise of God. It's going to happen just like God has delivered in the past. In these ways, this ultimate deliverance is going to happen here too, and so that's that's how he orients this discussion uh, here. Here's how it breaks down based on that. Uh, Peter writes in verses one and two to remind the reader of this promise by telling them to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the command of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter basically is saying this promise uh, that exists, new heaven and new earth, 
Uh, this promise is something that the prophets talked about. I was looking backward. Uh, and the Lord talked about through his apostles. And so you have basically Peter saying, you guys know this promise exists and is going to happen because they talked about it and we've been talking about it. Uh, so there should be some other New Testament witnesses to this. Uh, if Peter is saying that other apostles have talked about it, there is, and we'll get there in a minute. Uh, and there should be some Old Testament references uh, from the prophets about this subject. There are, and we'll get to those as well. Uh, and so Peter is trying to set up this argument of there is a promise awaiting fulfillment, uh, and they talked about it, we've been talking about it, you all should anticipate it. That's what Peter's doing here. Okay, with me? No. <laughs> down a lot of tracks. I know. Uh, <laughs> and we, you know, you make the statement, we'll get that, we'll go there, we've done that all along. Well, unless we have time. We have gone through it, it's all on the papers. <laughs> Uh, but I am available for private tutoring sessions of uh, the book of Revelation if we want to meet and talk about those things too. Okay. I get you. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, okay, continuing on, verses 3 through 4 of 2 Peter 3. Uh, Peter highlights this, uh, well, what he calls scoffers, this criticism that scoffers will bring. They say this, verse 4, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Okay, so whether this is a actual thing that's being said right now, uh, which things certainly could be, but you also have uh, Peter writing here that this stuff is, is coming. That there are going to be these people that are uh, saying, um, where's God? There's a promise, but it's not happening. Things sure look the same, but what this scoffing here tells us, this question, or these questions, well, I guess it's one question, and then a clarification. Uh, what this tells us is uh, what we should be anticipating. <clears throat> so you have the scoffer saying, where's the promise of his coming? But then it clarifies that even further, or adds some more to that. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So this isn't just a question of where is he at. The scoffers are saying this because we know that he hasn't come back yet to fulfill this promise because nothing has changed. So they're anticipating when he does come back that there will be something new. That something, something will be different. That's what that tells us. And that's what Peter goes on throughout the rest of this chapter to say, it is going to be different. It's going to be different like this. Okay, continuing forward here. Uh, Peter talks about the flood uh, in verse 5. They deliberately overlook this fact. The heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's the negative statement there. There's a positive statement uh, in verse uh, 13. We're making our way there. Uh, so you have Peter drawing on the flood as part of the answer to this question. They're anticipating uh, at Jesus' coming that things will be different than they are. Uh, that things will look different. Uh, that... 
things will not continue as they have from the beginning of creation here, uh, but that there will be some kind of significant change. And Peter says, we've already seen something like that once, and looks to the flood. says that there was a change to the creation in that moment in dealing with the ungodly. Again, he's addressed this in the earlier parts of the book. He's coming back to that idea. And then he says, there will be an ultimate version of that, a final version of that. Not with water, but with fire. The destruction of the ungodly, uh, where these sinful behaviors and activities won't be continuing anymore. That stuff is going to be uh, completely gone and removed. That's, that's the thing to anticipate. That all the sinful, evil stuff, the consequences, all of that that's going on, there's coming a time when that will no longer be in the creation. Did more stuff print? I temporarily fixed the printer. You temporarily fixed the printer. Uh, Can you pass these out if people raise hands? Can somebody uh, pass this out if they they raise hands? Who's willing to? Okay. Thank you. There we go. Now we can all be confused together uh, on the same piece of paper. Uh, here's, here's kind of the summary of this. Uh, in both the flood and this new creation, sin will be punished, the ungodly will be destroyed, something new will be created in its place. The difference in these events is explained by water and fire. So Peter is comparing the two, uh, but where the flood was more of a temporary kind of thing, by that I mean... Uh, you still had Noah coming to, uh, like, the, the earth is the same. It's not a new earth. It's kind of new in a sense, uh, but it's the same earth that has been corrupted and all of that. But there's a, a chance to do the right thing on it now, which they ruin, uh, which we ruin. We're participants in that. But there's a chance to do something new, but they're still on this creation that has been affected by uh, these sinful things. Peter says that's not how it's going to be. There's a final, more full version of that sort of deal uh, where sin will be fully uh, cleansed and dealt with. And he says in verse 13, kind of jumping ahead, uh, that we wait a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the positive statement. It should be uh, it should be three pages together. We can just set it down and I'll, we'll do it later. Come see me afterwards for handouts. It's right here. There's three pages. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Top of page three if you're sharing your papers. Uh, Peter then moves on from here, the destruction of the ungodly by fire and all this. He moves on in his discussion to say... Uh, the a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is a day to the Lord. Because, and he comes back to the scoffing idea, the reason why you would have scoffers is, where's God? He sure is taking a long time. And so you have Peter saying, well, hold on. Time works differently for him. Okay, so don't, don't sit there and go, well, I'm still waiting, I'm still waiting, I'm still waiting. Uh, but understand that there's something that God's waiting for. Uh, what Peter lays out is the, the repentance of uh, the ungodly. That God's desire is not destruction. He wants to save. If God, if God wanted destruction, there's no need for his son. Uh, and He could go ahead and just wipe out any time he wanted to, as, as much as he wanted to. But there's a reason he says after the flood, I'm not going to keep doing this. God, God doesn't have the desire of destroying. He will because of justice. But God's desire is that people will be saved. 
And so you have Peter saying, if, you, if you're considering God to be slow, it's not because he can't fulfill his promise or he's not going to fulfill his promise. It's because there are a lot of people that God wants to be with him that currently are not. Uh, and so you have Peter having that whole discussion. But then he says in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Second Peter is an interesting book. It has four different words for destruction. Four entirely different Greek words for destruction. Uh, Peter is very much about the destruction stuff here uh, within his, uh, his letter uh, and the, the justice against the ungodly. Uh, but we can, that, that's a good subject for another time because the prophets were often on that as well. Uh, but you have Peter here using that phrase that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He didn't come up with that. Jesus says that uh, in Matthew 24, uh, where he talks about uh, being ready for that day. Uh, that if the, uh, he, he talks, he uses thief Im imagery about knowing when the master would come home, all those sorts of things. So you have Jesus using thief imagery, but also uh, Paul does this. In fact, Paul very specifically says in 1 Thessalonians 5, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so you have Peter using that same kind of language, this language that Jesus uses, this language that Paul uses about the suddenness of it all. And so Peter wants them to know if God's being slow in our minds or delayed in our minds, it's not because he can't or he won't fulfill the promise, it's because he's waiting uh, for repentance. But don't take that delay as uh, opportunity to be lax and, and sit behind and all the... God's looking for repentance, so go be involved in that process. Go help bring other people uh, to God and be aware that when it's time to happen, it's going to happen. It just, it, it's going to come. You won't be ready for it, uh, so you need to be prepared for it now. Which, by the way, is how John ends the book of Revelation. This word soon, this idea of he's coming back. Well, when? Well, now I can't give you the date of this thing. Uh, and if anybody tells you that the date is hidden in Revelation or any other part of the Bible, uh, take whatever book that is, or if it's a person, and then just walk away, uh, or set the book down, get rid of it, because they can't. Because we don't know uh, when these things are going to happen. This is the same issue the prophets struggle with. They say God is going to do this. God, God is going to make these things happen. Yeah, but when? When is he going to? Soon. Keep going. And that's how the prophets answer. That's how Peter answers this. Keep going. Be faithful, because he's going to be faithful to his promise. Remain faithful to him. Okay, continuing forward. Uh, the way, uh, well, Peter ends this chapter. I'll say in verses 12 and 13. Uh, Peter ends this with, uh, according to his promise, we are awaiting New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, the positive side of these things. That this new creation is going to be righteous, only righteous, that kind of idea, because sin and all those things will be dealt with. So imagine a world where none of, nothing sinful, none of its consequences, none of its effects, no evil of any kind, all that exists. Hard to do that. Even if we can think about evil things and all of that and say, well, that wouldn't be there, that wouldn't happen. It's still going to be a difficult task for us to grasp this idea of 
a creation that has never had to deal with the effects of sin whatsoever, because we haven't experienced that. Uh, but we will. Uh, and that's what you have Peter writing here. The section does not end in verse 13, though. In my Bible, at the top of verse 14, you have you know the, the subtitles they put in there for you that God didn't put in there, but translators did. And it's helpful sometimes. But here, it cuts off what Peter is still talking about. Hey, he's talking about this new heaven, new earth idea, verse 13. Wow, what a great statement. But then he continues, Therefore, awaiting this promise, where righteousness dwells, this new creation, this new heavens, new earth, Beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's, it sounds a lot like a normal ending, but what you have Peter doing is keep going, uh, be patient, keep being faithful to God. And then he specifically mentions Paul has also talked about this stuff. He says Paul has dealt with this idea of things being made new, of sin and its consequences being dealt with, uh, and something new being made in its place. That's what Peter tells us here. He tells us that the prophets have done this at the very beginning of the chapter, that other apostles have spoken about it. And then he says specifically, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you about patience waiting for this promise of God. So let's go to Paul. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Um, we are going to read directly from Romans 8. So you want to turn over there. There are a lot of sections that we could turn to, 1 Corinthians 15, the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, where heaven is talked about uh, a great deal. There's mentions in you know, Philippians, and just heaven is talked about a lot, uh, but Romans 8 is the, the one we'll focus in on uh, for, for sake of time. 45, right? So I've got 11 minutes according to that clock. Great. Romans 8. Starting in verse 18, we'll go through 25 there. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with <coughs> patience. Okay, so this place where Paul also stresses Patience as we await for the dealing with sin, the freedom of those things, and something new. This section is part of that. We can keep going through Romans 8 uh, and a lot of the other parts of Romans <laughs> that are hitting at this idea. Uh, but this section right here, uh, for Paul, it's not the word promise, it's the word glory. 
the word glory is what he likes to talk about here. Uh, we didn't read this verse, but if we backed up to Romans 8 uh, and verse yeah, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Think about Romans 6, the passage I, that's one of the go-tos when I'm talking to people about baptism. If we've been joined with him in a death like his, surely we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul's using that same idea of united in this suffering with him, united in this glory with him. Now, if we, if we have this suffering, surely we'll be uh, glorified with him as well. And then he goes into the section that we just read, talking about that future glory. This thing that we're anticipating. Is there suffering? Yes. But this is what's coming, so be patient. That's, that's what Paul is dealing with. Okay. Uh, did you hear how many times creation came up as we were reading the section? I've got somebody like laughing. I've got some people. Who knows? It shows up a lot. I think it's five times. I think it's five. Um, and at first read... Uh, at first read, we might look at that and go, that's talking about us, uh, people, and all of that. But then we find in verse 23, uh, not all may share this opinion, and I understand that. Unfortunately, you just have to hear me talk uh, today. So, uh, not only the creation, but we ourselves. And so he makes this contrast here of there's, there's we, the people of God, but also the creation. He's been talking about the creation, uh, exactly as you might think it is. Uh, and so, all that being said, consider this. Uh, let's... I know we're jumping around. I think this is okay. Uh, go to Genesis chapter 3, if you will. If you don't want to, that's fine. You can stay in Romans 8 uh, to, to see some of this. If Paul is talking about the creation itself being corrupted and it desires to break free from its uh, bondage to sin, which is what he says, uh, its bondage to corruption, uh, not because it did something wrong, but because of stuff that was done on it. Okay, He says it was subjected to futility, not because of anything it did, but because of the one who subjected it. Okay, and that's what we're dealing with. Here's what I think Paul has in mind. Uh, consider in Genesis 3 and verse 17 uh, that we have this said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Uh, the way the ground was working before to just yield its fruit to him with very little effort, not no effort, but very little effort, uh, is now going to be different. Because the ground is cursed, and that has, that's going to have consequences for Adam. But the ground itself uh, is cursed as part of this in Genesis 3. Then we move into Genesis 4, where we have Cain, who is a worker of the ground. Uh, verses 10 through 14. I know this is a lot. I know it's a lot. Uh, and the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. 
Cain said to the Lord, My punishment's greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hit. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. On from there. Uh, but you have the ground being brought up again here. It's not cursed directly in Genesis 4. It is in Genesis 3. Uh, not in Genesis 4, uh, but this consequence of those things is highlighted again. So you have God saying to Cain, there are consequences now. The, the creation itself is going to behave differently because of the sinful behavior. That's the point we're drawing out. Then we jump into Genesis chapter 6. This is actually on your paper, though, too, if you have a paper. If you have a paper. Uh, consider the phrasing of God in the flood narrative where God says that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. That's Genesis 6 and verse 11. The earth here is not the people, though. The earth itself is something different because, in verse 12, it says, God saw the earth, behold, it, the earth, was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Uh, flesh is the people term in Genesis 6. Earth is the creation term. And the creation, it says here, is corrupted because of the flesh. Our sinfulness didn't just affect people and the people around us, our sinfulness also affected the creation that we are a part of. As, as early as Genesis, this stuff is being discussed. Okay, one last one here. Uh, at the end of the flood, uh, and this whole section is really, um, really interesting because there's a lot, like an extreme amount of repetition here. Uh, you have multiple words being used like seven times, nine times, 12 times, just constant usage of similar words. Uh, and in chapter 9, we have this covenant being made with Noah, but at the end of chapter 8, we have this covenant being made with Noah. There's just a lot of repetition here. But notice what's said in Genesis 8 uh, and verse 21. So you have Noah building an altar, offering a sacrifice. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So the ground doesn't get repeatedly cursed because of man's sin. Uh, man is just going to take the curse upon himself until Jesus takes it on him, which Paul has something to say about that in Galatians. Uh, so the ground is not continually cursed for these sinful actions of man, uh, but it had been, and we're moving towards a point where the earth will cease. Okay, let's uh, skip way ahead out of, uh, what, what do I cut? What do I cut? Let's look at Isaiah uh, 65. So I have Isaiah Zechariah, Ezekiel, and Daniel on here. Those aren't even all the references. Those are all the ones I cared about mentioning. And then I have Genesis. There's more stuff there on the handouts that you'll get, uh, but we've covered a lot. Uh, so we'll end with Isaiah here and our summary. Uh, Isaiah chapter 65. I should have been turning there while I was saying this. <coughs> If you don't know where Isaiah is, that's okay. Sing the song. Go through the books. You'll get there. Uh, Isaiah 65. I'll start in verse 17. I want to read through 25. We don't have the time, but so we'll just read a couple here. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. 
Okay, Peter didn't come up with the phrase. John did not come up with the phrase. Isaiah uses that phrase. It's a phrase that God gives to him. Uh, and this is the phrase that our New Testament writers are drawing on, the idea that they're drawing on. I create a new heavens and new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create J Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And then if you just go read Revelation 21, the first four or five verses, it's going to sound extremely similar uh, to just those few verses we read there. New heavens, new earth, talking about Jerusalem, talking about the no tears, you know, in heaven, that sort of thing. That's not even unique to John. Isaiah says that first. Uh, he's got that in there. Something that God gives to him. Uh, I do want to lay this out uh, as we turn into Isaiah chapter 66. Well, we'll read, we'll read this part. Which part? Verse 22 of Isaiah 66. And then I have a very important point to make about this stuff. Because obviously we're not covering everything. Uh, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Uh, okay, not super positive there at the end of verse 24, but it is when you consider that the language that's being used here is the justice against evil and sinful things, and that the godly will be in a place that is uh, where his name remains forever and all of this. Okay, here's the very, very important thing to keep in mind with all of these Old Testament references. Okay. My, my goal was to give tools to continue study in Revelation because there is just simply no way. Uh, in 13 weeks, uh, in a year maybe, <laughs> to go through and cover uh, stuff in Revelation. But you have so many tools now to go in and take questions to Revelation and go, okay, I probably shouldn't go this way with it, uh, but this will help guide me in that direction. Okay, very important. It's important here to note that not everything is exactly one-to-one -one because Isaiah isn't talking about a heavenly idea. Uh, these people did not really have afterlife concept. Everybody went to the place of the dead. That's what we see in the majority of the Old Testament. Towards the end of the Old Testament, we start getting a little language that starts to suggest some other things. That's not really the thing they thought about. Uh, blessing and cursing happened here. That was their whole thought process. Isaiah is writing about a future that would make sense to the Jewish people. City, protection, glory, like the good old days of King David. That's, that's what the Jewish people can grasp. Uh, a fortified, well-protected city, uh, no enemies, that kind of thing. Jesus, John, and the other New Testament writers expand on these terms, phrases, and teacher, teachings and give them fuller meaning. Uh, we call these things dual fulfillment prophecies. Because they had a direct and a meeting to the original readers here in the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, these connections come along and John and these others say there's a more real version of that. That they couldn't have fathomed. That, quite frankly, we can't fathom either. Uh, a lot of it. That Isaiah would go, wow. We'd be back in Jerusalem. We'd be fully protected. We wouldn't have these enemies. Man, wouldn't that be incredible? And it would be. 
but the thing that John talks about, far greater than that. I have to read this summary, the conclusion, before we go here. Don't forget there's another handout thing here based on a discussion from last week. So grab those. There's some other handouts here. I'll try to separate those. <laughs> okay, conclusion. Throughout our study, we have repeated the words, Revelation is difficult because we do not know our Old Testament like we should. This is seen clearly in the closing chapters of Revelation. John draws from the Old Testament heavily in every part of his prophetic writing. As a result, we are left with an ending that is not only satisfying to us as readers of Revelation, but satisfying to us as the people of God who are participants in the long-held tradition of living for our Lord while we anticipate the fulfillment of his promise to bring us into a place completely devoid of sin and its consequences because it is full of his glory and righteousness. The book of Revelation, with all of its illustrations and connections, paints a clear biblical picture to its reader. The promise of God will soon be fulfilled. Anticipate it, long for it, and live for him now so that we can, this is quoting chapter 22, Enter the city by the gates and find our end in the place where it all began. Holy people, unseparated from our holy God in his perfect creation. Take any questions. I'm happy to field more questions. I was, I was not joking about the private revelation tutoring or whatever. I'd love to keep talking about this stuff. Uh, but we have things to move forward in. That being said, always available to talk more about these things. But I hope that with these various handouts you have tools that you need to pursue those things uh, on your own as well. Thanks for being here. I enjoyed it. I know it was like a fire hydrant, but uh, it's over now. You can rest. And uh, <laughs> Thank you.